Hello, and welcome back to Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brennan Buddha. We are back to talk about Robert E. Howard's Queen of the Black Coast. As we said last episode, this was published in 1934. And when I say talk about, I mean, this is our discussion episode. We already recapped it. Right. We we have, I guess, in some sense, been talking about, but this is the formal discussion that we are going to have. Before we get to that, though, just a, a reminder that thanks to your generosity, we are now doing a chapter-by-chapter series of episodes on H.P. Lovecraft's novel At the Mountains of Madness on Patreon. And if you're not already with us there, we would really love to have you join us for this. We also did another extra bonus episode this month for Remembrance Day. Uh, this is Valerie and I talking about the original series Star Trek episode Balance of Terror, which is you know, it's just a great submarine story in space, but it's also a great story about being a soldier in a, uh, a ridiculous war. And again, doing that extra episode was thanks to another Patreon goal that we hit, thanks to your generosity. Yeah, thank you so much to all of you who already support us on Patreon. And I'd love for more of you to at least go check us out on Patreon, check out the bonus episodes that we have available and see what interests you and support us at the level that you can afford or at least matches your interest in what we put out at the different levels. And if you can't afford to join us on Patreon, please, if you haven't already, review the shows on the network that you listen to. This is something that is also very important to us as a network and our goals as a network as well. Well, now that that's out of the way, we are here to talk about Queen of the Black Coast. So Glenn, you're in charge of the discussion. What do you have for us today? So as I said last time, we're we're going to talk about race in this story. I mean, there's no way not to, right? I mean, it's a story about two white people and their black slaves. Uh, you know, the, the word black as an adjective describing a person is right there in the title of this story. So Howard is being very upfront. Up He's leading with that. But uh, that said, my, my impulse is for us actually not to lead with race because I don't see a whole lot of purpose or profit in condemning historical figures for not sharing our contemporary moral values. And I don't want to come out swinging at Howard. And so my impulse was to put this more towards the middle of the discussion. But the thing is, the weird element of this story is really adjacent to race. And if we're going to talk about how Howard depicts these non-human people and their civilization, we're going to have to juxtapose that with how Howard depicts non-white people and their civilization. And so we are going to start with race, but we're going to start by talking about the prehistoric, winged, non-human people that we see in the drug-induced dream sequence first. Now, the horror here, right, is how this once civilized people descended into monsters and, and one lone surviving monster in particular at this point over you know, millions of years. And and here is how Howard describes that, or one of the phrases that he uses anyway. Also, by the way, everything that we really need for this is actually on page 139 of the uh, Del Rey edition. That's the, the coming of Conan the Chimerian. That's the edition that we read the story out of. But uh, here's the line. As they had risen higher than mankind might dream, so they sank lower than man's maddest nightmares reach. That's an awesome phrase. Just beautiful juxtaposition, dream and nightmare high and low. I mean, just that's just some, some of this expert uh, sentence writing that we get from Howard all over the story that we talked about last time. But 
let's get at the heart of what's going on here, the content of this sentence. And so my first question for you, Brandon, is what do you think Howard means when he says rise higher and sink lower? I mean, presumably, right, he's not literally talking about like floating in the air, though these people actually do have wings, but I don't think that's actually what it means here, right? But what is it that Howard is measuring? Higher than what? Lower than what? What are these adjectives describing? I think Howard is engaging with a type of cosmological worldview, like an order of being where men, and we've talked about this in in different episodes and different shows on our network about a, a kind of Catholic cosmology, which is that men are somewhere, or mankind really, is somewhere on the order of being between beasts and angels. And this is an assumed cosmology about the world uh, that you can reference with shorthand, I'd say well into the 20th century. And I don't think people would have struggled to really understand the higher or lower aspects of being here in 1934 when this story was written, because there was still, on some level, a culturally accepted, assumed cosmology. Um, now the world we're living in, which is somehow 85 years after this, um, <laughs> our cosmology has shifted. We might not have a cosmology at all that, that is socially recognizable or at least, uh, normalized in society. And so we don't have those senses of the order of being. And so what I think Howard is getting at here is that these kind of prehistoric, sentient, conscious, intelligent race of peoples, because they were both literally and, uh, you know, represented to be as on a higher order of being than mankind, they're able in their corruption then to sink lower on the order of being than mankind. But they're not becoming animals, strictly speaking, Howard uses terms like pinioned demon to describe their fall. So really, Howard is playing with images of angels and demons here and is looking to environmental purposes that cause the fall uh, of angels into subhuman things or evil, worse evil than people can be. Uh, rather than uh, a rebellion against God or gods or something along those lines. And so that's really the sense I get when he's talking about higher and lower here. He's got a firm cosmology in his mind. Um, and the idea is then that something that is a, on a higher order of being than mankind is going to be corrupted then to become worse than mankind. Yeah, I want to be clear that, that Howard is not using the word angel in the, the text. So that's obviously what he has in mind here, because, you know, he is using all of these uh, uh, opposites here, right? I mean, just the the, the higher and, and lower, the, the dream and the, the nightmare uh, and so on. And then, yeah, contrasting demon with something, but he doesn't contrast it with angel. He contrasts it with winged God. And I, I have to imagine that the reason that he didn't use angel is that he thought that uh, that was a bit of world building that he didn't want to. To do here. He didn't want to say this is a world that has a concept of angel, um, even though Howard's totally comfortable just taking, you know, names that, that actually should not even exist, uh, you know, at this time in his prehistory and just using them here. Um, I could see where uh, he would balk at doing that, but that is also clearly the idea. But that uh, cosmology that you're talking about there, Brandon, this very medieval Christian cosmology is about measuring the nature of your creation. Right. And that what makes an angel superior to a human 
is the nature of your creation by God, the order of it and the purpose for it. But that's not the the worldview, I think, that Howard is using here uh, on the page that he's putting into his world. I think that is a worldview that he expects his readers will have and that he's playing with, and, he's, and that he's playing with that with these phrases. But I don't think that he's measuring here, right? He's not saying that these prehistoric, non-human, uh, civilized people were created by the same God that created humans, but first and in some different way. I, that's certainly not in the text. And I don't think that that's, I don't think that that's what it is that makes them higher than humans. I I think that's right. Uh, I, I totally agree with you. And I was just using <laughs> that uh, cosmology there, that sense of cosmology um, to point out Howard's shorthand here and imagery that he's really playing with. Uh, Howard, if he is an atheist, I'm not really sure of his religious worldviews or uh, senses of God. Howard here at least is leaning into ideas of evolution and on some level even cosmic horror. And these are things that don't require uh, a creator God or at least a beneficent deity to create something in his own image. Uh, none of that is really a part of the text. And so I guess I would say that if Howard is an atheist here, he's a Catholic atheist, which means that his worldview is still informed by uh, maybe beliefs he no longer holds, that he's still drawing on for the at least the rich imagery that we're, we're finding in this story. But you're absolutely right to point out here that um, we can't textually lean on that cosmology to quite make sense of the higher and lower. Howard explicitly is talking about um, numinous qualities like intelligence and um, like intelligence or strength or things like that. Like they are just physically and mentally or spiritually superior to humans than anything else that we find in the in the natural world. Howard is is using actually a ton of religious language here, even while not presenting a, a worldview, a cosmology that is tethered to any particular like real world religion. But he's using a lot of of, of specifically Christian terminology here, right? In addition to you know that even just the invocation of demons and, and the image of an angel, even if that's not the word that he's using. But he also uses the phrase abhorrent perversion. He doesn't actually ever get around to using abomination here, though he might might as well. But for him, it's it's not God here that uh, that things are perverting or God's order. It's simply nature, and this is where we do actually get even just the word evolution used in this part of the the text. And so I think that you, you're right to to point out how Howard is using a cosmology that doesn't require God, but is actually using all of these these Christian and, and maybe more specifically medieval Christian uh, phrases and and words to paint that picture, which is, I think, just really artfully done. It makes for some really beautiful and exciting and evocative reading. But I do think that Howard actually has an answer to my question here in the text, that there is something specific that he's measuring that's not just some kind of like vague sense of of being spiritually superior to humans in some way, that there is actually something that these creatures, these, these people, we never actually get any kind of a name for them, but that these people 
have that did actually make them superior to humans in one, at least, measurable category, and that was scientific knowledge. Uh, what Howard says is that uh, all that remained of their ancestors' vast knowledge was distorted and perverted and twisted into ghastly paths, and that that is the side effect of their transition from or transformation from winged gods to pinion demons, that this is about science. It's about knowledge and, and potentially then, or and presumably then also about technology, though that's not something explicitly that, that, that Howard says here. Yeah, that's an excellent point. I suppose uh, that's what I meant by intelligence. <laughs> but yeah, th there is that direct line in the text about that lost knowledge of the civilization. And it really gets us to, to wonder about the path of these people who have advanced knowledge, advanced science, perhaps advanced technology as well, but refuse to yield or bend any of their scientific prowess in light of the changes that are going on in the world. And so maybe this is a classic uh, tragic flaw of hubris or pride that has really destroyed this civilization, which is certainly the sense that I got from the text. Yeah, the the phrase that Howard uses here when he's saying when when he's talking about why they didn't leave. In fact, what he says is they did not migrate to fresher land. So why they did not migrate out of this area as the climate is changing? Uh, Howard says that this was because of reasons inexplicable to humanity. Uh, reasons inexplicable to humanity held them to their ancient city and their doom. Man, just another great phrase. As I said in the recap episode, <laughs> just this stuff just could have been its own amazing story on its own. So awesome. Uh, just brilliant, beautiful writing. But yeah, I think that you know, the, the idea that it's reasons inexplicable to humanity is not maybe necessarily to say that, that there was something wrong with their reasons. It, it's and In some ways, maybe it's kind of a cop-out, but we might actually think the reason that you don't leave from this city. Uh, I mean, we could, you know, invent a bazillion of them and actually then maybe go write some fan fiction with them. But like one that we might come up with is that like, this is a holy city for them. And so it doesn't matter if, you know, something has changed about the climate, the environment, the ecosystem here, we have to stay in this city for, uh, in order to you know, do the religious rituals that really matter for something else that we care about. Right. And so uh, when you say reasons inexplicable to humanity, what you're saying is, is that the, the, the reasons are not something that the, the reason may actually have been good reasons, may have been justifiable reasons. They're just about things that don't matter to us. I mean, we could even look at an analog in our current real world environment with, uh, you know, a need to shift away maybe to a reliance on fossil fuels in order to save our environment, uh, to make more sustainable consumer choices and things like that. I find a lot of the reasons that people give to not move in that direction uh, inexplicable. <laughs> so there are even things in our society that maybe are going to be inexplicable to, to a future generation or maybe future generations uh, way down the line that they could say their, their choices were inexplicable <laughs> to humanity as we know it today. Yeah. How, how, how is it possible that these people in the past didn't, well, one, have the foresight to see what was coming, but then also how did they not possibly you know, value the same things that we valued? I mean, this is something that we do looking back in the past all the time. And, and, and then, yeah, just really struggling actually to, to get into uh, you know, the same kind of, I guess, mental space is the colloquial term we might use as the people who made these choices. But these people, this, this prehistoric, non-human intelligence civilization, 
decided to continue living in this city, even as the ecosystem was changing around them and, and, and making it impossible, really, to live here. I mean, gradually over you know, a pretty long period of time, but not unknown to them, right? It's very clear that they know that this is happening and they choose not to migrate away. But I also do want to make clear that although I think it's really interesting for us to be thinking about climate change in this story, Howard would not have been thinking about climate change in our terms, uh, you know, as, as the sort of result, uh, the man-made result of industrialization. That's not something that uh, would have been conceivable actually to Howard or anyone else at this point in the, the 1930s. Uh, as much as it is, as easy as it is for us to want to read that back into this story, that's not really what's happening here. The mechanism or the reason for this climate change has something to do with magnetic poles causing an ice age. I don't think shifting of magnetic poles is actually what causes ice ages, but you know that's fine. Uh, that's the mechanism here. So it's something that is, is not brought on by these people themselves. It is something that happens to them from outside. And so that's the real cosmic horror element of this, that there's there's nothing that they could have done to prevent this. Uh, and the only thing they could do is leave and they choose not to do that. So so that's all just there in the, the, the backstory. But I want to emphasize even more specifically what it is that's going on with the ecosystem here. It's not just a kind of vague notion that their ecosystem, their environment has changed. It's actually quite specific that they're living in a uh, river littoral and now with the the climate change owing to the the shifting of the magnetic poles their ecosystem is becoming more uh, like a jungle and in fact it does indeed transform into a jungle and so it is the living in a jungle that is the the first catalyst that makes these people stop being people and and, and makes them start transforming into uh, demons into beasts and, and in fact, actually, we might even be even more specific than that, is that they become ape-like. That's the result, right? So this uh, nice kind of temperate climate turns into a jungle with the result that the intelligent, uh, extremely scientific civilization that lives there, uh, they turn into apes. They become ape-like. And and so here's where <laughs> I think we need to bring this into Howard's treatment of, of, of race, uh, within human beings, is to point out who else is described as ape-like in this story. The most explicit comparison we get to any other kind of human character to ape in this story is is found on page 141 in the Del Rey edition that we're reading. Part of this is a feature of the tension of the story that Howard is trying to build at this point. Like, is this moment after Conan wakes from the dream to find this uh, the the black crewman of the Tigris is that going to lead to the final confrontation with the winged beast, the winged ape, and Nagora or Ngora is the leader of the crewman. He's he's black, and he is the one that Conan sees. But at first, Conan thinks he just sees a great black gorilla crouching ape like. And so what Howard is describing here is somehow this encounter with the winged humanoid ape creature has in some sense brought out the deep animalistic qualities of Angora and Howard is describing this as ape-like. And so to have the, and we, we've seen these apes in the jungle before, they've been pointed out to us as being 
the creatures who within whom the trapped souls of evil men reside. So there's already this association between the ape and corruption. And now to have a human character described this way is to give us a sense that uh, Howard is thinking of black people as being uh, lower on the order of being perhaps than, than white people. Then I assume that, 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 that's what you're trying to get at here, Glenn. Right. I mean, I mean, Conan literally can't tell the difference between a black human and an ape when he sees a black human in the, the jungle. And I think that it is the context of being in the jungle that really matters here. Uh, maybe I should back up just a, a, a bit here and just say that the context of this imagery in the 1930s or really at any point in the early 20th century of depicting black people as uh, gorillas or, or other types of apes, but most frequently gorillas, was all over the culture. This would have been in all sorts of cartoons, both uh, still cartoons and also uh, animated cartoons of the day that this is an image that uh, really you could not escape uh, if you were living in the United States uh, at, at the time that this story was written. The equation of black people and uh, gorillas specifically, but but apes you know, more, more generally. And I think it's really the, the jungle here that matters, right? Because this is a story about how some people who were... Uh, intellectually, uh, scientifically, technologically superior even to what humans have accomplished in the 20th century, uh, you know, in the 1930s. It's about how those people uh, descended to become, you know, lesser than, to become actually more like animals, to become ape-like because their environment changed, because they went from living in a temperate climate to living in the jungle. And so there's something about living in the jungle that robs you of your intellect, robs you of, of your knowledge, and robs you of civilization. And so Howard's depiction of black people as lesser than white people in this story, which is you know really clear, really up, up front, is interesting to me in that it is not about their physiology, and he's not here in this story advocating in any explicit way or even just subtly reinforcing by, by not examining his own assumptions uh, about this being genetic or physiological in some way. I mean, genetic isn't isn't something that, that would have been said in the 1930s, but that it was not about blood, not about their body, not about a physiological inheritance, but is actually resulting from their environment. And so presumably... Anyone living in a, a jungle is going to become ape-like, become beast-like. But then, then also, if you could escape the jungle, but then you could, in Howard's words here, rise higher. As an aside here, what this really makes me want to do, this conversation so far, is uh, do a comparison of uh, H. Ryder Haggard's King Solomon's Mines and uh, Michael Crichton's Congo <laughs> to see how these uh, ideas about race uh, and race in Africa in particular uh, play out in adventure fiction and like kind of transform over time. And this story, I think, would be a really good middle point between those two adventure stories about uh, wealth, technology, race, uh, and the, the jungle, really. Uh, I don't know. That's just a side note that made me think of a miniseries for a podcast someday or something along those lines. But but I think you're absolutely right. I, you say blood isn't of issue here, but I think it really is. If we're thinking about um, nationalism and the rise of nationalism in the 1930s of the Nazi slogan, like blood and soil, 
that it's not, it is not just the idea that environment makes you who you are, the land where you live, but also the race of people that are the true like inheritors of that land. And implicit in this idea in, in Howard's text is that some places are unworthy of uh, of create are, are unable to create people who are even worthy of being called human or on the same level of human as the rest of us. And uh, this is an insane idea. It is openly racist. It is verging on national socialism uh, or the not Nazi party ideals. And I think it's, uh, you know, it's something we could throw out from this text and actually not miss much of. And the reason why I'm bringing it up is because of the references to the Shem, the people of Shem, uh, the Shemites, or, you know, as in, in the Old Testament, they become the Semites or the, or the Jewish people, and then also the Stygians as well. So I do think blood is a part of this implicitly if we're tracking with the way national identity or uh, national being in a land forms your ability or molds your ability to participate in humanity more broadly or proper humanity, so to speak. Um, and so it's a disgusting idea here that Howard is really playing with, uh, but not explicating. Uh, but it's implied that he kind of believes it. Well, we have talked before. We, we, we just did the, the Blackstone not all that long ago, a few months ago here on, on the show. Just absolutely brilliant Howard story. I, I know, Brandon, you said you thought this was probably the, the 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 best Howard story we've done so far. Actually, you may have just said Conan's story, but at any rate, I think the Blackstone is probably my favorite <laughs> Howard story we've done so far. But we talked about nationalism and uh, the importance of race and ethnicity in the worldview that we find in that story, in the Blackstone, where Howard very definitely is actually tying things to bodies and using blood and so on. And, and that was actually one of the things that I think really jumped out to me here in this story is that it it is actually kind of absent. And I, in fact, I want to talk about the Jewishness of Belit here to to illustrate what is, is subtly different. But before I even do that, I do just want to say that you and I are, are implicitly uh, engaging in an activity here that we have not made explicit to our listeners. We have maybe in other episodes, but I don't know, this is like episode 90 of this show or something <laughs> like that. It's like almost, I don't know, you and I have literally done close to 300 podcast episodes together. And so we don't always make explicit our methodology when we're approaching these stories. Also, we're maybe not always consistent with it, but very clearly here, what we are doing is talking about this text as if it exists really kind of in isolation, uh, except maybe where we're connecting it to other Howard stories that we have read. And so we are not taking into account every story that Howard ever wrote. And we're definitely not taking into account the material that we have from Howard that is not his fiction writing, such as uh, letters, uh, diary entries that we have from him, all sorts of things that if we were actually Actually, scholars who were interested in writing a book about Howard's use of race, we would have to read all of that before we even like had anything at all to say about it. And that's not what we're doing. We're just taking this story that we have read and we're really kind of more asking questions than we are uh, trying to come up with answers here. So all of that just kind of kind of an aside about our methodology. But uh, let's get back to, to this story and, and how it compares to the Black Stone, because we did see something very similar to this in the Black Stone when we did that, where uh, people's racial and ethnic identities are the most important thing that we can ever know about them, that those identities determine who you are as a person. They determine 
what you are like. And that is here in this story as well, right? In the uh, tour of the world that we get in the opening here of Queen of the Black Coast, uh, that tour really emphasizes the physiological differences among ethnic groups. And so it does promote a worldview in which you can determine everything that you need to know about people by observing their bodies, right? It is literally privileging the color of their skin over the content of their character when you're making decisions about them and trying to understand who they are. And I, I don't want to belabor this. I don't think that this is even you know new to anyone, right? It's not as if you know no one's ever noticed this in Howard's work before or you know talked or written about this before. Uh, you know that it, it's really all over Howard studies, Howard scholarship, of course. But I think I do want to address your point, Brandon, about blood and about bodies and how that relates to belief. Because I do, well, yeah, I mean, you said, I think maybe disgusting, Brandon, uh, you know, certainly is a word that I would, uh, you know, use to describe, I, I think what we have to label as, as, as bigotry, Howard's bigotry, and, and in this depiction of belief as uh, greedy, this is not a line that we really talked about in the, the, the recap, or even a motive that we talked about in the recap. But belief's whole deal is that, you know, she's a pirate, she's trying to amass a treasure and doing that without regard for killing other people, or regard for getting her crew killed. But like Conan, she's actually from this part of the world, right? She's physiologically white-skinned, and that's something that really matters in the way Howard describes her. But on top of that, she's Jewish. Uh, I mean, not, you know, explicitly, not literally, because Jews don't actually exist yet in this prehistoric world. This is part of the same reason Howard doesn't actually use the word angel. But yeah, you, you made the parallel there, Brandon, you know, Shem or Shemite, Shemitic is really just a way to say Semite or Semitic. And in fact, you would find Shemite and Shemitic and Shem in ancient texts. Uh, but anyway, here's the line that Howard writes about her greed. He says, The Shemite soul finds a bright drunkenness in riches and material splendor. So, right, for Howard, right away, right, there's just something innate about Jewishness that makes a person greedy, uh, and, and greedy to the point of, of sacrificing others in order to amass wealth. And, and there's a real sense here in which treasure is essentially a drug uh, and Jews kind of can't help it. Uh, they're more, they're, they're just more susceptible to that drug than other people are. And this is pretty ugly. This is pretty disgusting. This is the type of imagery that we are getting in Germany at exactly this, this same time that is gradually building up to the Holocaust, right? Depicting Jews as greedy, depicting them as parasites because they are greedy and so on. But I did find interesting here the use of the word soul rather than than blood, that, that for some reason, there just seems to me to be less emphasis on blood and bodies and, and physiology in general here in this story than we had in The Black Stone. This is a small sample size, and I don't quite know what to make of it, but it is something that jumped out to me just because we've done these stories in such close proximity. I wonder if Howard is making that word choice specifically because of the way that this story relies on metaphysics in order to resolve its uh, kind of narrative tension, in order to resolve the main conflict of the story to, to get us to the denouement. So I, I wonder if that is a uh, choice made methodically by Howard to keep us in the metaphysical spirit of the story in order to give us that resolution, to lead us to that resolution that he has in mind, and less about, um, you know, an ideology, bigotry, racism, or anything like that. 
That's a really excellent point, and I think is a great place for us to transition into talking about the the metaphysics, the gods, the cosmology, also the cosmic horror in this story. Before we step into that room, into that part of the the conversation, though, I just want to wrap up our, our talk about race, or just to say that there's a lot more to do with race in this story, also in Howard more generally. Um, I certainly feel like all I have been doing so far, and like I don't know, the thirty minutes we've been recording this episode is kind of bum. <laughs> around in the dark here on this topic, a topic that deserves, I, th- I think, more more precision than uh, we've been able to bring to it by by just reading really this one story and having you know, really maybe only one other point of comparison. It has actually been on my agenda of uh, doing this bonus series that I've been doing with guest hosts to bring on someone who has done some work on uh, race, either with Lovecraft or Howard, you know, a scholar who's done some work on these topics. I, I have not been able to, to get anyone on the show uh, to do that yet. Yeah, it is my goal to to do that. But even if we are never able actually to do that, I think there's a lot more that could be said with each other on the forums or on the subreddit, right? This is a conversation that we can all have uh, together with the, with the audience. And we'd certainly be interested in doing that and, and up for doing that. Yeah. And we can also say that this story isn't just, uh, we, it is ugly. It is racist. There are those strains of thought in Howard's thinking, um, but we're not but Howard also does talk about uh, black kingdoms in this story. It's not enough to counterbalance his attitudes that are like majorly thrusting the story forward uh, about uh, what we see as black people being naturally subservient about selling their own kind into slaves and things like that, that come forward. Um, Howard is racist here. We do not condone it. And I think, uh, but this is a part of a tradition of literature uh, especially speculative fiction that we see even coming into the 1980s and 1990s in the representation of things like Ferengis in Star Trek. This style of world building, of coming up with a representative uh, type that represents a whole planet or a whole continent or something like that that people have to engage with still remains to this day as a type of world building. And many authors have tried to back away from using ugly racial stereotypes that we're familiar with. Um, but it's not a problem that has gone away completely. And so if this troubles you about reading these texts and you're a writer, think about the way you approach world building is what I would suggest doing to change the problems that have emerged from Howard's influence on the field, maybe rather than just throwing out the whole uh, canon uh, uh, of weird fiction. And that is something that you and I have been engaged in as writers. And I, I actually thought about making that a topic for the discussion episode here, but we also have a ton of other work to do. So I, I left that off, but maybe you and I should just do a, I don't know, some kind of separate episode about that uh, someday. Of course, I'm, I'm, I'm real prone to coming up with a list of episodes that we ought to do, but not actually in getting around to inventing a device <laughs> that makes more time or like removes our need for sleep or something like that. And of course, you also suggested a whole series on H. Rider Hacker, which I would love to do also. <laughs> But yeah, where where are we going to get the time for for all of these projects we'd love to come up with? But uh, yeah, let's uh, let's turn now to this digression that we get on gods and cosmology. Uh, we get this right before we entered the ruined city, which is just perfect place uh, to to put a perfect pacing. It's all on page one thirty three of the Del Rey edition. 
I really love this scene. It's just Conan and Belid talking about whether they believe in fate, whether they believe in the direct intervention in the world by gods. They talk about death and the afterlife, even also whether the world is just an illusion. This whole conversation, this whole digression, it's just one page. So, you know, it's not like they're solving any of these philosophical problems, but it is an awesome bit of, I think, building of of themes and motifs here for the story. Uh, It's also a really awesome bit of character building. And so uh, from that perspective, Brandon, although, you know, we can go pretty wide here on this, uh, this scene that you and I both, I think, really, really uh, reacted positively to, but what is this scene doing, do you think, to set up the, the characterization here? How is this exploring Conan's character and how is it letting us know what this story is about? All right. So here's my real problem with this story. <laughs> my core problem with this story <laughs> is Conan is the most unsympathetic bastard <laughs> that exists, right? <laughs> he totally uses and abuses Tito, uh, this this shipmaster of the Argus, who's like a really good dude and like very sympathetic and empathetic with Conan. Um, he, he knows his limits. Like Tito's a great character, a character I really like in this story. He's like, hey, Conan, you seem like you've had a rough day. Let's have a beer and talk about how unjust society is. And uh, Tito's the kind of person I think I'd like to hang out with. I think his crewmates probably like respect him a little bit and uh, maybe get mad at him or lose some respect for Tito when he's like, guys, we got a guy with a sword who just did an acrobatic leap onto the ship. None of us are really fighters. So I have to crack the whip, but like, I'm still a good guy, you know, like don't, don't hold it against me. I'm doing what I have to do. Um, it was really troubling to me in my first read of the story to see Conan so easily shift allegiances between the Argus and the Tigris, right? He does everything he can. He kills all of these crewmates of that, that all these people that will become his crewmates. He fights to defend the lives of the Argus, uh, of the people of the Argus until, and he'll fight to his death, even as the Argus is lost. And then because Bali is like really hot, he's like, actually, like I wasn't actually that loyal to them. And so that shift in attitude to me, reads is like a, a like psychopath type of, bit of behavior, and what this scene does, the the metaphysical conversation scene does to help me make sense of Conan is to understand that he was never fighting the crew members of the Tigris. He was never loyal to the crew members of the Argus. What he is loyal to is the the fury the berserker mode that he that arises in him when he's in <laughs> battle so he's really just looking for a battle he's looking for pleasure and he's just moving from one moment of that to the next so conan is not uh, what we'd call like an ethical hero he's not somebody like worthy of imitation he's not the the wise man who who will form us when we're young to become uh, good people in society he's like truly a man in his own class he's a barbarian he's a hedonist and so i can understand the decision he made without any type of real baggage to just like pursue pleasure in battle because that's what he's after anyway. So this 
conversation, in terms of characterization, really helps me understand Conan. It also really helps me understand Belit, because as much as she loves marauding and raiding, she does it, uh, one, because maybe she worships a thief god a little bit, and so that stuff is pretty cool if you worship a thief god, but she's also really interested in love, like because worship demands love on some level. Our love of things, what we sacrifice to get other things are, are a revelation of, of what we actually worship. This is a kind of maybe an old Christian idea, but like David Foster Wallace is super big on this as well in his fiction and writing. Uh, it's, a, it's a contemporary problem that I think is worth addressing. So Belit is a person who loves. Uh, she at least loves gods and what they promise her. And so that also motivates what happens to her character at the end. She loves Conan. I don't think Conan loves her. Conan loves pleasure. So that's how all of that works together for me. And mechanically, it works, even though I don't like Conan at all as a person. Like, I wouldn't want to know him. But uh, I do love the adventure part of this story. Like, and I love Howard's prose in this story. So how, how did it work for you, Glenn? I think Conan's real problem is that he himself simply has not been crushed by love yet, but uh, we can we can hope that will happen for him someday. That's uh, that, that's in his future. But no, you're you're absolutely right. I I can't help but compare Conan to Solomon Kane. You know, we've done one Solomon Kane story so far, The Blue Flame of Vengeance. That was not a story that either of us loved, and the reason that neither of us loved that story is that we thought Solomon Kane was an absolutely awful human being. And, you know, essentially was the, the Punisher and that it really that that story felt a lot like torture porn to me. And this story does not. Conan also, as you're, you're so aptly pointing out, not a, you know, an ethical person, not living with any kind of ethical system, not a good person, not someone we would describe as good in any way, but also does not strike me as evil the way that Solomon Cain struck <laughs> me as evil. And I think that's actually a big part of what Howard is doing here with the character of Conan is in depicting him just as this hedonist. He's, he's actually just id. He's all id, right? That's what's going on here with Conan. And that makes for fun storytelling, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I'm not kidding when I said, like, I, the prose of this story really blew me away. The poetic elements that, that Howard is able to weave in through the sentences, the rhythm of the sentences, the poetry, the adventure is pretty great. I mean, I'm trying to write a, a jungle or forest adventure with, like, a temple as well. Uh, <laughs> you know, I'm always looking. They, they never really satisfy me. This one did a little bit. Um, but uh, I'm trying to write uh, a story that will about uh, a hidden, uh, you know, temple or whatever in a forest or jungle that will actually satisfy me. I'm not sure if I'm up to the task, but I'm trying. But uh, I really enjoyed the way Howard handled the narrative shifts to get to the, the ruined city. And that's something I'm going to take away as a, as, a, as a craft note as well. Well, something I wanted to ask you, Brandon, about Conan's hedonism here, his attitude maybe really to the meaning of life that we we get in this this philosophical conversation. It's really interesting to me that we get that. And then really just like six pages later, we get the description of the cosmic horror that befalls this other uh, intelligent species as prehistoric, you know, millions of years prehistoric intelligent species that 
there was a real contrast here in the way that Howard is playing with scales of time that Conan is essentially saying, I just live from, you know, one day to the next, I get up and what, whatever I crave in, in that moment on that day, that's what I'm going to aim for. That's what my life is going to be. And then we get this, you know, cosmic horror that's set on this time scale that takes millions of years to play out and is about impersonal forces. I mean, I guess that's what cosmic horror is about. It's about impersonal forces, right? But it's about just like, you know, the magnetic pole changing and the effects that 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 has the cascading effects that has on people uh, just such a contrast there right showing the, the way that conan has to live in a world that seems to actually have a very different attitude than he does it, it really highlights a few different things one thing that it highlights is that uh, howard is able to point out to us as you said the kind of world that conan lives in provide the conditions under which Conan can be Conan, right? You can't pursue pleasure if you are uh, in a below subsistence level of surviving, right? There have to be cities. There have to be civilization. There has to be agriculture in order to press wine. There have to be sexual ethics and norms to either be upheld or violated that add a sense of thrill to whatever's going on or freedom to pursue who you want to love or have sex with who you want to have sex with. All of these are, are conditions of society, conditions of the world as it is, you know, to use a, a philosophical term, worlding around us. Um, so that's one thing that points out is that we are all living in a world whose conditions provide us the ground to even be who we can be or pursue the types of things we wish to pursue. The other thing it points out to me, it really highlights is that cosmically speaking, and here I'm thinking of the idea of the gods, is that even in this metaphysical conversation, the gods are mythical in the state that maybe they can be reached. Maybe they are superhuman uh, or physical in some way, but they control realms that uh, uh, speak to our spirits, our animating forces, our souls. And then those souls can go to be in those realms that are governed by the gods. But the gods on this plane of existence are superhuman, have a super ability to control certain things like the weather. So we're looking at metaphy the metaphysics that are of the gods that are maybe more present in like Greek and Roman mythology than we have uh, with a Judeo-Christian kind of mythical cosmology uh, as well. And the world building that Howard does here is just awesome, right? It gives us so many names of of gods here. We get a big list of names of the the Shemites. Belit tells us this. You know, she insists. In fact, she says the gods are real, and above all, the gods are the gods of the the Shemites, which is uh, just a great bit of character building there as well. You know, we get some real gods listed here. In fact, they're almost all. They are definitely all real gods. Ishtar and Ashtoreth. Uh, Ashtoreth actually and Ishtar are the same exact person, just in slightly different Semitic languages. I don't know if Howard knew that or not. Uh, Derketo is a real god. Adonis, Bel, also these are all uh, real gods in uh, the, the ancient Near East, um, often se separated by uh, centuries, actually sometimes millennia uh, in terms of their worship, but all mashed up here. But we also get 
uh, Viking gods <laughs> mentioned here, which is very cool. And then, yeah, we get Krom, who is Conan's god, um, or, you know, he's the chief god of the Cimmerians, maybe we should say. And he dwells on a great mountain, is what we are told. Also, little he cares if men live or die. Uh, but he's, you know, envisioned as, a you know, this god living on a, a mountain, which is very much like Zeus, uh, and and so certainly has some resonances there, and yeah, I just love the world building that Howard does in in this conversation as as well with these lists of gods giving us their different attributes. They've all got they're like their own afterlives that they're running, and they take on totally different characteristics. <laughs> um, it's a really interesting cosmology, and it would be cool to ask, but hey, isn't there something? After that, like what are what actually are the metaphysics of this world? Like if you die and your soul goes into the afterlife of just whatever numinous being has claimed you, like is there a way to go between those realms? What is in between those realms? What's above or beyond those realms? Right? None of that addressed here in the story. We don't have to take that up, but it it, it just really is asking us to ponder. Uh, about that here and uh, just a very cool bit of world building. Yeah. It doesn't seem to me as though anyone in this world really believes in, in like the God beyond, like, you know, if we're going to look at medieval Catholicism again, or Christianity, the God who lives on the other side of the firmament, right outside of the realm of, of uh, humanity's ability to access like that is, that's not a part of any of the belief systems of this world, uh, of the the world that Conan is in. And so, um, yeah, that that's, I think, another thing I just wanted to, to point out here. Well, and someday when we uh, actually get around to doing the Book of the Long Sun over on the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast, we can take up exactly that uh, that topic and uh, think about the outsider. But uh, yeah, let's, uh, let's move into our last segment here. This is going to be on the craft of writing. And in particular, I want to talk about Belit's ghost. The last beat of this story is Conan's grief at the death of Belit, Belit who has been his lover for a few months here. And this scene was absolutely beautiful. Uh, it was very rich. It was very emotional. Uh, and, you know, I know you said earlier, Brandon, that you're not sure that, that Conan loved Belit. That might be true. But I think in this moment, he definitely does. He's having a lot of feelings. He's feeling a lot of feels uh, for sure in this moment. But as beautiful as this scene was, it did not feel earned to me, right? We get a lot of sexy talk from Belit. There's a lot of uh, big cat similes that are kind of hot, you know, if you're, if you're into that sort of thing. And if you are, that's cool. Uh, but, you know, I didn't realize until the end, until this scene that we were reading a type of romance in their relationship. And I think that this story, as fun as we both thought it was, could have been strengthened by putting that earlier in the story by by focusing on the romance between Conan and Belit a little bit more. And so I just want to brainstorm with you, Brandon, about how we might alter this story to emphasize the romance such that this final scene would actually have more of a punch to it. There is a, a rule in screenwriting that I think everybody's familiar with at this point. It became like a huge, somehow broke out into the pu public discourse about storytelling uh, called Save the Cat, which is <laughs> to, to demonstrate, uh, you know, you have your characters written, you have the relationship done, um, but you need to have a moment that shows care sometimes in order to 
really hammer home the sentiment that you're going for. And this, you know, this rule has been shorthanded as being called like save the cat, like your character does something really nice and selfless. And it just uh, brings brings home and cinches the idea that your character is a caring person. There is no save the cat moment in this story between Conan and Belite. And in fact, the only moment that we would have that would really cinch that, uh, that sense of care is the snake in the grass. And it turns out that's just a ruse because Belit saves Conan. So Belit has the save the cat moment towards Conan. She deceives Conan into thinking there's a snake in the grass so that he'll get away from a place that she suspects will be booby trapped. Conan is willing to do that. But like we've said, his motivation to act here is pretty much that he loves killing and violence. So we don't have any moment of care towards Belit, any scene that shows that care until the very end when he very tenderly burns her dead body on her ship and lets it sink into the ocean. And so what I, what I'm left with then is the sense that, that Conan is the type of person who like women can only be loved once they're out, out of your life, which is like a real thing, right? Like, I think we've all experienced that once or twice. Um, when you look back and you're like, yeah, I did love that person. Um, so what I would have done is just add one of those moments of care, you know, um, have instead of like the crewman, be attacked by that giant snake on the ship. Maybe Conan and Belit are having that conversation on deck and he sees it in the jungle and Belit is then in real peril and he saves her and then says like, you know, I did this for you, not because I love killing snakes. And then when the moment for Belit to say there's a snake in the grass to get Conan away from the booby-trapped altar comes up, that would also tighten that moment that she knows that Conan has already done this thing out of love for her. And just tweaking those two things, I think, would have really given us a stronger sense of their romance in the story. Yeah, I think I want a little bit more than that. I want to tweak a little bit more than that. And, and in part, it's actually because I find Belit to be an interesting character, and I would like her to have more to do in this story, I would get rid of the ghost entirely. I don't think that really works with the cosmic horror. It's just one too many numinous things happening in this story. So I think for one, you just want that single focus there. But also this death would just have, or this grief would seem more earned if the scene here where Belit shows up and, and saves Conan in the end is actually Belit. Like embodied and not her ghost, and that it gets her killed. Right? That 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 she saves him, but the act of saving Conan gets her killed, and so she has died for him. But also, I think even that scene, a scene like that, would would need to be earned. That I would want to see more about their relationship. And you've got some good solutions there, Brandon. But I think I would like you. I think go back to the booby trap sequence. There's a lot I would change about that booby trap sequence, I will say. <laughs> but in terms of romance, I think that I would actually not have Belit be this cold-hearted person who's going to sacrifice these other people so that she can get treasure, though I also understand that's at the heart of what Conan is doing with her. And so I'm asking Howard to not do that and to do something else, but to have there be real jeopardy for her there and for Conan to do something that puts himself at, at great jeopardy or in great jeopardy in order to save her. But then also, I think that they should be going in the jungle 
together. I, I don't really like this motive. Uh, that I don't really like the motivation that sends the people into the jungle just being that their water is gone and that Belit's just going to hang out on the ship while the rest of them go into the jungle or, or, you know, many of them go into the jungle anyway. And that then her death happens entirely off page in a way that doesn't actually motivate Conan to do anything. Uh, he doesn't do anything differently than he would have if she hadn't died in that moment. And so I think the plotting there, the plot points there, um, could, could be stronger. They could, they could go in a different direction where we get some kind of reason that they have to go into the jungle, but that Belite and Conan are there together. They have some kind of adventure in there together as well. Maybe they even both, you know, fall under the spell of the, the Lotus or just Conan does. And he's got to rescue Belite at that point. He does. They get back to the ship and that's when we get the boss fight that she dies in something, something like that. But just to show them working together as a team a bit more uh, is, is really what I'm looking for. I think those are all great points. I, I think there are a lot of missteps in this story. I mean, to have a moment of peril, just kill some red shirts is never satisfying. You know, um, Conan or Belit should have been in peril at the moment of the, the stone falling in the altar. And then Conan saving her uh, should have been something that happened rather than just seeing how wicked both of these people tr truly are. <laughs> right. Because these are just, these are gen these are evil characters. They just are. I mean, I, I, you know, there's really no way around it. It's a fine adventure story. It's a great unjust and, and wild and chaotic world that these characters live in. And they're kind of free to pursue their, their passions, even if they're evil. Um, but yeah, these, these characters are not, as we've said, they're not good. I think one thing that we can be reminded of in reading the, this story about romance and love is that neither romance nor love and our subjective experiences in going through those things are, are, good, are things that are inherently good. They don't make us better people. Like loving a person is maybe an inherent good, but if you're enslaving a lot of other people and letting them die so that you can get a ruby necklace, that doesn't make you a good person. And so one, one, one takeaway from this story is that like, yeah, you can have complex characters that have hu that display human emotions. They don't have to be good though. And uh, love doesn't strictly speaking, make us good. So I, I like that Howard has that kind of complex crunchy idea about love in this story. I really do think though, I, you know, and I really agree with you when you say that there's just not anything about them working together, Conan and Belit working together as a team to demonstrate the strength of their relationship, to add that, to add to that emotional punch at the end of the story where Conan has to go on wandering alone, kind of being the, the knight errant, so to speak even though I don't think Conan is like going to carry any weight from this experience. <laughs> into <other laughs> right. Stories. Right. But that's what I want. Right. I guess the, the image I have here, I mean, look in my, in my head, my head canon of this story is that uh, Conan is being played by Daniel Craig. And then the next <laughs> installment, uh, the next Conan story in this sequence uh, opens with him at a bar drinking a lot of gin, maybe some tropical location. Doesn't really matter that much though, where it is. Uh, but you know, M needs him to get back to work. That's <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's 
really what I've got. It's not going to open with a weird intercut car chase racehorse scene. (laughs) We'll have that too. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I love, Brandon, that uh, you keep emphasizing that these characters are evil. And this uh, this has forced me uh, to think about if we were going to assign D&D character alignments uh, uh, to these characters, uh, what they would be. I, I, I think I would have to put Belit as lawful evil and Conan maybe as just chaotic neutral. Uh, what do you think? That, that's exactly what I was going to say. Those are that's ex- exactly right. That's what I think they are. <laughs> All right. Well, we've we've solved that problem at least. That's the one answer I think we can stand behind for this uh, this entire episode. <laughs> well, I think this is a good note to to go out on. I'm sorry we never actually did get around to talking about whether Robin Hood or Conan would win in a fight, but uh, we can do that elsewhere. So that is going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brendan Buddha. As always, you can find us and our other creative projects at ClayTempleMedia.com. If you'd like to support the network and get access to a ton of other bonus episodes, including the first Robert E. Howard Conan story, The Phoenix on the Sword, and then dozens of other episodes, uh, including, uh, you know, maybe a dozen that we'll be doing on At the Mountains of Madness by H.P. Lovecraft, join us on Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash Media. check us out and decide the level of support that you'd like to give us. And please also head on over to the Clay Temple forums or the Clay Temple Media subreddit and talk with us about Queen of the Black Coast. We raised a lot of issues here. We still, yes, have not answered the question about whether Robin Hood might beat Conan in a fight, but also some real serious uh, topics as well about uh, race and racism in Howard's work and maybe even just the whole legacy of weird tales. It's a really important conversation. We'd love for you to join us in that. But we also didn't get around to talking about Conan's uh, perhaps rather extreme views about justice systems uh, as well. (laughs) That might be worth taking up on the forums also. Well, as I said, uh, probably not in this episode, actually, but in the recap episode, at least, this story, Queen of the Black Coast, has been the last story that we are going to cover in 2021. But yet we are not done with episodes this year. So our next episode is going to be our year in review show. And then in January, we will start off 2022 with Sand Kings by George. R.R. Martin. And until then, we greet you and say farewell. <laughs>